Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome in, everybody. I'm Nick Seipel, joined by Motley Fool Canada analyst Ian Butler. Our special guest today is Dallas Tanner the co-founder, president, and CEO of Invitation Homes. Founded in 2012, today Invitation Homes owns more than 80,000 rental houses, making it the largest owner of rental homes in the United States. Dallas, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Great. I'm great to be here and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here with us. So just off the bat, I I said in the intro, Invitation, now the largest rental home owner in the USA. This is less than 10 years after the company was founded. To me, that's really remarkable because when I think about home rentals, we've been renting houses for as long as we've been living in houses. So how has Invitation gotten so big so fast? What's special about your company and the market environment uh, that you uh, matured in? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, single family rentals have been going on in this country for 250 years. There's always been landlords, right, that own properties, but it had never been done at a scale or in an institutional fashion where you could drive synergies, economies of scale, better services. And I think what you had happened, quite frankly, was and my background dates into early 2000s with single family rental. But during the housing crisis of 2007 and 8, you had this glut of supply come through the market, both primarily initially through distressed channels. Nobody could get mortgage. The availability of finance basically evaporated. Dodd-Frank came in, rightfully so, by the way, uh, to create you know, tougher lending standards. And you had this kind of glut of homes. And all of us saw our home values drop 50, 60, 70% in some parts of the country. And we had already been really active in residential. Uh, me and my partners had been buying manufactured housing developments, multifamily. We were looking at single family home and we said, you know, it's not all that different from our multifamily businesses in terms of if we could acquire enough scale, we could do something really meaningful here. And so started in Phoenix, and we bought about a thousand homes, no leverage uh, on our own and just kind of worked the business model to see if it could act and behave like our other multifamily properties with scale. And sure enough, it did. What we found, though, was that our customer was actually a lot stickier, meaning you know, the average multifamily customer would stay with you about a year and a half. The average single-family home resident, at least in our business today, stays three years and even beyond. It's getting longer and longer. And so as you started to think about that, you thought, okay, you have a really sticky customer. You've got great real estate if you anchor in on the right locations. What else can we drive to make this a better experience? And oh, by the way, you've got these 65 million people in the millennial cohort coming our way that want to be in a subscription-based economy. Like, Not everybody wants to own a home. Taking a step back, two-thirds of the country owns something and a third of the country leases something across the 150 million households we have in the U.S. It's very normal to have a pretty healthy percentage of your customer base in terms of housing across the country lease. And so why hasn't anyone done this like with professional standards, making it cool, making things quick and mobile? And are there, can we use our economies of scale to actually leverage into other things the customer might want. And so that's what led us down that path. We ultimately started Invitation Homes in 2012 after a few years of refinement, partnered with with private capital, uh, with private equity capital to start the company, took the company public in 2017. um, And it's just been a really successful story of real estate startup, but really not doing anything that hasn't already existed, just figuring out how to do it better. And, and, And usually when innovation spurs you know, around a, a number of different industries, you usually are taking something that's already been done in one way, shape, or form. You figure out how to do it better. Real estate's pretty archaic, quite frankly. There's a lot of things we do that we've done the same way for the last 30 years. We just found an element of real estate, meaning single family rental, detached single family homes, 
and have figured out a way how to do it better, expand our services across economies of scale. And it's been really successful. Yeah. So, so you talk about, you know, some of the conditions coming out of, uh, uh, you know, 2008, maybe create, created an environment that attracted capital and allowed the, allowed the, the business to grow. Invitation, as you mentioned, uh, you know, is, is the largest in its space, but isn't the only operator. What differentiates your approach to the single family uh, housing space relative to some other, uh, other operators? Well, there's a lot of money coming into the space, to your point. There's a lot of capital trying to recreate what we have. And our company today sits at about 80, 85,000 homes on a given day. We're in 16 of what we think are the best markets in the U.S. That's a differentiator between us and a lot of our peers. You know, 95% of my revenue in our company comes from the West Coast, Sunbelt, Southeast regions. And so we've really anchored in on parts of the country where we're seeing household formation and demographic growth at two and a half times the U.S. average. And so that's been really meaningful in terms of driving or not driving, I should say, having us be able to participate in the natural demand that's in the marketplace. It's led itself to major outperformance in our portfolio. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a few things. We buy a more expensive home than 95% of our peers. Our philosophy has been anchor in on being infill, buy a more expensive product, and over time and distance, that's going to lend itself to the better schools, great transportation corridors, and parts of the country where people actually want to live. Not because they want to live there because it feels reasonable. They actually want to live there based on location. So we have a saying in our business, we're channel agnostic, location specific, meaning we don't care how we can buy homes. We'll buy them through any, any channel that makes sense, but we're not going to compromise our location. So that's one big difference. The other is that our average price point, as I mentioned before, I think last quarter, our average price point was $450,000 a home. That's a lot higher than, than basically where a majority of the new capital or a lot of our existing peers are investing. And so we just anchor in on being kind of the high profile, high quality portfolio. And by the way, the coolest thing about our business, if you think about our customer, our customer today, we know a lot about them after the last 10 or 11 years, usually a combined household income of about $120,000. They've got one to two children living with them. And typically both parents or partners work in that home. And we're able to help that customer leg into a neighborhood they otherwise wouldn't afford. And that to us is kind of the social impact part of what we do that we're really proud of. We should have portions or parts of neighborhoods or communities that you don't have to necessarily be an owner to be able to live there. That you could through a subscription-based model, you know, lease or find your way leasing into that lifestyle at a much lower cost, zero down payment. We'll cover all the maintenance costs and all the long-term capex. And that, that model is really resonating with the customer. So I think that higher price point, a little more deliberate about where you're investing capital and why is a big differentiator for our business. Yeah, you mentioned earlier kind of the millennial demographic, subscription economy, that sort of thing. You also said you know, access to more, you know, a, maybe a bigger home than you could afford on your own. You know, who is your typical renter? What do they look like? How do they come to you? Uh, talk about that. Yeah, so thir- like I said before, Average age is about 39 years old today. So you think about what I said before. There's 65 million people between the ages of 25 and 36 kind of coming into our business. Like, so we're, we're really well positioned to, to meet that demand. They, the, the customer kind of falls into three categories. And before I go into those three, believe it or not, two of the three categories could buy a home if they wanted to. Okay. And I'll come back to that in just a second. So the first is, and this is the one third or plus or minus on our surveys that really isn't qualified for homeownership. And we call that, that our group out of necessity, meaning they, they just need the space. They need the affordability factor and they don't want multifamily. They want the garage. They want the yard. They've got two dogs. By the way, we're a total pet friendly company. So they look at us as an alternative to maybe an apartment rent or something else. And they go, 
this is better bang for my buck because on a per square foot basis, it's much cheaper to rent from us than it typically is for multifamily. And so that, that kind of a third of our customers come out of this necessity bucket. The other two thirds fall into two categories. One is transitional, meaning they've got some sort of life event going on. There's something going on in their world that has required them to kind of transition for a period of years. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new marriage. Maybe it's a divorce. And they're just figuring things out, testing out a school, testing out a community. And then the third bucket, the other kind of 35% is what we call our preferential. These are people that could absolutely own and they have no interest. They just want to lease. And they're kind of a couple of groups there. People like you know my age that would want like maybe a subscription-based lifestyle and just say, I want to be down payment light. I want to travel. I want to do all these other things. I want to invest in my Robinhood you know, app uh, versus putting $50,000 down on a home. And then the other is funny enough, like the boomers. We've got these like retirees that are like either I want to be totally cash light and I want to invest my money and I want to travel or, hey, um, invitation homes, I'd like to rent a home from you in Orlando because I'm only going to be here six months of the year visiting grandkids and doing this or that. The other half of the year, I'm going to be in Minnesota where I own. And so we've got this really interesting mix and we're seeing our segment shift more towards transitional and preferentials um, over time uh, because I think there are you know plenty of options for people that just need housing. Uh, but with that being said, we like that because in our business, for example, we have national partnerships with Terminex. We have smart home technologies. We have um, uh, filter programs for clean air where we automatically drop shift it. People want that. A lot of people are like, how do you guys do for me what Costco does for me when I step inside the door of Costco, right? Everything's there. I can buy a life jacket, <laughs> a, you know, a light bulb, uh, and I can buy more meat and produce than I need for a month. I can do it all in one place. And I think that's where we are starting to shift to with our approach to the customer. You know, cu- renting a cool house from us in a great neighborhood is just the start. How can we make life simpler? And so we're continuing that evolution internally and finding ways to drive that overall customer experience because when we do that, they just want to stay with us longer. And so I think you'll see us get more dynamic in terms of product offerings and also the types of leases we can add over time as we get smarter about what the consumer wants. Does that become a growth channel for you, sort of becoming sort of a service provider beyond just the house because you're sort of the touch point for any service out there? And and, and is that sort of something to explore in the years ahead? I I don't know where things are at. I'm sort of new to the story, but. Curious about no, abs- absolutely. Um, it, we're early in our journey. We, tar- we laid this out about two and a half years ago at our investor day. We said, look, we think we'll do $30 million a year of run rate ancillary revenue mm-hmm. based on, which is pretty small when you consider we're a company that does almost 2 billion a year. Mm-hmm. But it was like, we wanted to show people the path and we had to kind of get comfortable with, you know, getting uncomfortable ourselves and exploring some of this. And we also don't want to be gimmicky, right? We don't want you to like move into our home and feel like we're hitting you with a new service every 30 days. Nobody likes that. But what we want to create, it was like a suite of services and a menu. And I'd say we're in kind of the first or second inning of that development. So today, when you lease from us, you get the smart home functionality that you can lease from us, which gives you thermostat controls, locks, and all that stuff. Eventually, I think that'll just be ordinary course. People will just expect that. That'll just be standard. But today, you get that on a subscription-based service. We wanted to make sure that as part of our overall ESG strategies, we start to weave in some customer responsibility around filter programs, clean air. It also extends the life and duration of your CapEx with home, you know, HVAC and things like that. Now what we're starting to experiment are some of those optional things like pest control, pet services. We have, you know, we have 50,000 pets in our homes, which is kind of a remarkable number. What are things we could do with cool companies out there that could drive down the costs of owning a pet, right? And also create kind of some pet friendly resources for people. 
And then we've got a few things that were kind of in the can that we're working on. Like it could be as simple as like gym memberships and things locally, but we really want to try to drive value for people and things that we all pay for. So we're doing a lot of work right now around insurance. We're trying to figure out ways like how can we help people drive down the cost of maybe life or auto, right? And are there national providers that we could use our strength and our economies of scale with to help create that as an option for people if they want to buy insurance through a preferred partner. So those are kind of, you know, some of the things that we're starting to fine tune, but the delivery piece is one that we spend a lot of time on. Like we don't want to overwhelm people right when they step in the door, they got to pick 30 different things to like manage their life. What we want to say is, Hey, got this great property. We love having you as a resident in our portfolio. And by the way, here's the one or two things we want you to have that are kind of part of the program. But we have another 20 that you can choose from at any time, you know, and you can do this all mobily. Like that's where we're trying to make this, the process to where somebody can sit there and go, you know, I'm sick of my current insurance provider. I want to see what IH has. And if they can get a quick quote and figure out they can save a hundred bucks a month, they should do that with us. And we think that that is part of a value add experience or the subscription-based model where people come in and go, this is way more than just leasing a home. This is a cool company. This is a lifestyle company. I want to try to get, you know, closer to the things that they're looking at and see if it can, you know, provide a better experience for me and my family. And I was just going to uh, just quickly follow up sort of along those lines. Uh, Nick mentioned off the top, I'm coming in from Canada and have some familiarity with Tricon. Um, I've fo- yeah. followed them for a number, number of years. So sort of here, just to, curious about listening to the story. Um, but they've talked about how, as you say, technology has come more and more in, into their business as they've scaled. They've had to leverage technology and AI and whatnot. So just when you're buying and adding to your portfolio of homes, h- how have you sort of evolved on the technology front? And then just even from the maintenance perspective, how? How has sort of the maintenance of a growing portfolio um, evolved over the years? Yeah. Uh, by the way, big fan of Tricon. I think they do a great job. I like Gary Berman and his team. Um, you know, it's interesting. We obviously are co- collecting and consuming a ton of data all mm-hmm. the time. So you think about it, you break it into a few different parts. So first, just the real estate data, right? Like tracking things like how is our portfolio appreciating? What are we seeing in CapEx with, with particular parts of the country? Are we finding that we're more efficient in an 1800 square foot home or a 2300 square foot home and and why how much how much time are we having to spend on mechanical systems in certain parts of the country and what's the average wear and tear so that's like your real estate bucket which obviously impacts the way you want to invest capital mm-hmm. over the long haul and then there's other things like what are we learning from the customer and their experience meaning are there ways that we can serve the customer and that we can adapt our operating model to over time Really fascinating stuff over the first 10 years of our business. So when we started, you know, we were rehabbing homes. We're putting in a lot of carpet in homes because that just kind of felt like that's what you'd have in your home. And then what we figured out over time through wear and tear and through customer insight was like, oh my gosh, people want like luxury vinyl plank flooring. They want hardwood surfaces in more areas versus not because they're easier to clean. And when it doesn't feel like you own your home, that's a bit better value proposition for somebody. And so now we're doing like things like hard planks and luxury vinyl plank flooring almost throughout entire houses in some markets. And then we're also doing things around certain paint colors, fit and finish standards, certain things with cabinetry and uh, what I would call countertops. Uh, And that has actually led to an evolution of how we work with home builders here in the US. We have a national partnership with Pulte Homes where we're putting like very particular fit and finish standards at home for a variety of reasons. One, it's what the customer wants. Two, it's more efficient for our investors over time and distance. You'll see that we'll be much more sustainable in our long-term thinking around expense. And three, it's lifting the value of the home, both in the near and long-term in terms of if we ever sell that home back into the secondary market or the end user market, 
it's very synonymous with what people want uh, in terms of, of what they want to buy today from a third party. And so all of that data is driving our thinking around the real estate and then also around the latter part, which is the customer experience, meaning like what are the services people want? Like when we get smarter, for example, around pets and pet programs, it's like, okay, well, how do we onboard somebody with their pets when we move them into a home? For a lot of people, when they move into our house, it may be the first time they've lived in a single family detached house. They could be coming from a townhome or a multifamily project where they don't know how to even turn off a water main if there's an issue. So we have a system called ProCare. When we move somebody in, you know, you're going to hear me talk about this. You're going to go, oh, that, that makes sense. But it's like, it took us a year or two to figure out this is the best way to move people in. So we have one of our superintendents. They move you in, spend about an hour with you, go through, you know, kind of a 50-point checklist on the home. But then they'll like finish the meeting with like, there's two or three things. If you forget everything else, there's the two or three things we need you to remember. If there's like water coming out of the roof for some reason, it's not your fault. Just maybe there's a mechanical or something. Here's your water main. You got to know how to shut that off. And we'll be here with the caller emergency service line. Then we say to them, hey, listen, anytime you move into a home and you start, you know, running faucets, flushing toilets, messing with door handles, whatever, you might find a thing or two that like drives you bonkers. That's normal. We find it anytime we move into a house ourselves. Here's the fridge list. And we schedule the appointment to be back with them inside of 45 days. If it's an emergency, we'll be here in an hour. Like, just tell us. But if it's just something that's like, you know, simple, cosmetic, something you can live with, put it on your fridge list so we can have somebody come out and for an hour and a half fine-tune anything that you just aren't happy with, right? And what you do there is you create a lot of, you take a lot of the angst out of a new situation with living and you build trust with the customer. And then what we do is we say, look, from as long as you live with us, you can always call us. They have our maintenance number. They know how to you know, schedule things on their app. But we say, we're going to be in the home every six months. That's safety, health issues. We also want to make sure that like, you're not having a bad experience with something that you just haven't picked up the phone and call us about. So that pro care model for us has really worked. We, we, were, we probably made a ton of mistakes in the first couple of years of doing this business. And you know we wanted always customer service to be a 10 out of 10. But until you figure out how to fine tune your services and what works for your customer, a lot of people want to be left alone. A lot of our residents don't even want their neighbors to know they're renting for whatever reason. They just don't care. It's like, hey, I live in the neighborhood. I'm your neighbor. Uh, whether I own or lease, you know, why, why should we care? And so having systems that are efficient, that work for the resident, allow us to get in the home, have all been delivered. And developed by you know intaking all this data, we do half a million work orders a year in our homes. Um, we spend on average three thousand to say thirty five hundred dollars a year per home in our portfolio just on maintenance and long term capex. When you kind of average it out, and we all know what a pain owning something can be. Uh, you get smart across eighty thousand plus. Yeah, so uh, your report earnings last week put up one of your biggest uh, quarters as far as acquisitions in a long time, boosted your future guidance for acquisitions. When you look at this market today, we opened up talking about, you know, there's a big oversupply when you look at 10 years ago. Today, I would say there's a big, big undersupply. Demand is, is much higher um, than there is supply on the market. When you look at conditions today, what makes this housing market so attractive for you to really put your foot on the gas as far as acquisitions? Yeah, I mean, we wish we could buy more, honestly. Um, the marketplace is fairly tight from a supply perspective, and we're pretty picky about where we'll invest capital. But I would say, you know, what people have the hardest time understanding and for the listeners is that you have to be honest about why we are where we are, right? Meaning why is it that there's only four to eight weeks of supply in any given market on a resale perspective? Now, taking a step back, we're still going to have six and a half million resales in the US this year. And that's a pretty healthy number. What you're just not seeing is the amount of available inventory. And there's a couple of things that have caused those challenges. First, Go back to that housing crisis of seven and eight. 
What happened to builders? Let's just be honest about it. They had overbuilt, developers had overspeculated, and everyone got slammed. They either lost money, were restructuring with banks. I mean, there's a lot of you know, difficult situations for developers and builders and building supply folks. They got left holding the bag on a ton of their distribution because homes weren't selling. And there was obviously just a lot of pain in, 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 the, in the space. Well, as a country, we need somewhere between about a million one and a million four in terms of new units being brought to market every year. Well, if you look back at like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, we never got to a million units. We were like six, seven, 800,000 deliveries. And so while the economy was, or sorry, while the housing market was kind of climbing itself out of distress, companies like us, us were buying excess supply. A lot of these markets had two to three years of inventory, which is totally unhealthy. We, what happened was, is builders were very slowly getting back into a comfort level of being able to develop and bring new product. And can you blame them? I mean, banks got hit with attorney general settlements. Builders were like restructuring you know, major issues with lenders and everyone was freaked out. By the way, the builders did a good job in this period of taking a lot less debt off their balance sheet and getting their companies in much healthier positions going forward. But you know, you get to 2021, I think this is the first year we've developed enough supply to just keep up with annual consumption. So we've got 10 years of underdevelopment. That's the headline. And so Nick, when you think about it, from our perspective, we've got all this household formation occurring. We've got people that are wanting to maybe stay a little bit longer in some areas but have flexibility of a lease. And so it's a perfect scenario for our business because again, that millennial cohort we talked about is much more transient, wants flexibility, doesn't necessarily want to own a home. And so as we've weighed all this out, we're pretty bullish about the prospects of our business. We want to continue to invest capital. Um, it will not correct itself, in my opinion, overnight from a supply perspective, this is going to take time. And you know, rightfully so, we have made lending standards that are a little bit more deliberate about if somebody should own a home or not. You shouldn't be able to you know, borrow 80% on a first and 15% and on a second with no income while you're in college. And that was going on in 06 and 07 and, and, and lenders got smoked for it and, and builders you know, felt the pinch when all the you know, development and future supply they're trying to bring on slowed down. And so as we talk to our builder partners, you've got those you know, considerations. And the other issue we're all facing, which we all got to be honest about too, is you know, COVID's really disrupted the supply chain. For developers and for builders. I have conversations with builders all the time that are like, I can build a home. I can build the entire home and still be waiting on a door and window package or a plumbing package because I can't get the parts from overseas. And so that's going to take another six or 12 months for that to kind of normalize, I would bet, when you look at our consumption of goods versus our consumption of services in the country. And so there's a lot that's lent itself to this moment in time. It's great for builders. It's great for developers. It's going to be really good for people that own real estate. Um, and we think our prospects and the demand that we're feeling, uh, Nick, you mentioned, you talked about our rental rate this quarter. I mean, we, we know trees don't grow to the sky, but we've been shocked at what the market is willing to pay for a vacant single family for rent home right now. We don't set market rates. Let's be really clear about something. If we're overpriced, it doesn't lease. If we're underpriced, at least too fast. But we're pricing it like where the market is. And I think this last quarter, we were in the high teens, 17, 18% on new lease growth on our vacant product. Now, we're obviously being careful with customers that are in our homes. You'll see that our renewal numbers are much lower than that, you know, 9%, 10%, maybe 11% when you blend it all together. Um, we know we've got a, a lot of embedded loss to lease in our current portfolio with our people that are renewing, but we feel like it's the right thing to do and to try to, you know, try to be moderate in terms of where the market is versus where we're asking for a renewal. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're really excited about the prospects for our company. We're not worried about demand right now. 
feels like there's tons of demand in the market. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that uh, that that rental growth rate, right? So the blended growth about over ten percent. You got eighteen percent on the the unoccupied, where you've got new renters coming in a little bit lower with the with the the renewals, as you mentioned. How long do you see this persisting? Because as you said, there's this this misalignment of supply and demand in the market with the supply chain issues. This could this could take a while. So you know the underlying market dynamics you're talking about, I don't see that turning in reverse here in the near term. So how long do you think uh, you know rental rates will be constructive for your business and uh, you know uh, keep going up for for renters? Well, I don't see the cost of housing going down, unfortunately. Generally speaking, just for all of us. I mean, we've got wage inflation, we've got cost of goods sold inflation. Um, we're not seeing, you know, the one thing that could help the, the market kind of calm down a little bit might be a little bit of interest rate creep and allow natural supply to kind of inventories to kind of fill back up a little bit, see a little bit more of a moderate pace, maybe in, in new home purchasing and things like that. I'm a big fan of like normalized markets over time. While we're grateful for the amount of demand we have in our business today, I'd like to see this be sustainable. So I don't think these are sustainable numbers uh, that we're seeing. And, and I would expect these to naturally come back down to earth at some point. But you're right. I, I don't see how in the near term, demand falls off a cliff. It's it just, there's not enough housing inventory to keep up with US demand. Um, companies like us do a nice job of aggregating good supply and making it available and offering you know professional services around it. But we need more supply and we're not a supplier. Um, we need builders to feel confident that they can you know go out and develop at a quicker rate. And you got to be honest, it's not their fault either because legislation in a lot of these markets make it very difficult to bring new supply into the U.S. housing market. California, for example, we love California. We own 13,000 homes there. It is such a difficult market to bring new supply into. Um, It's not as easy as a market like Arizona or Georgia or Florida, where developers tend to focus a lot of their resources because it's easier to bring new supply and people want to live there. People want to live in California. Let's be really clear about it. Like The sunshine tax may be a little bit expensive, but it's a great place to live. From, from a weather and, and just like, a, you know, a, a, a dynamic, you know, GDP market and everything else. But it's very hard to bring new product. You talk to builders there and they just want to pull their hair out because you can't get anything approved and you, you face every regulation on the planet. And so, you know, I think if, if this is a very hard thing to unwind, to create new supply very quickly, because there's so many factors at play. You've got the supply chain factors. You've got interest rate factors. Right now we have free money. So it's super easy for somebody to buy a home. And then the third factor is that every one of these markets behave on their own in terms of how easy they make it for a new product to come into the market or not. And I just think, Nick, again, we're just not going to see the pressures ease up in the near term. We're just not. That's my, that's my own feeling. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so looking at this environment going forward, uh, constructive demand supply environment, uh, what do you make of the prospects for your business, say, the next three to five years? What are some, some road markers that are on the... Uh, on the map for you going ahead? I'm really bullish. We want to continue to grow our portfolio. We make no qualms about that. We've signaled, we just signed a national partnership with Pulte Homes uh, that we're going to deliver another 8,000 new building. Uh, well, I should say that doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. New, new homes, new footprints that we're bringing into the marketplace. We'll try to continue to expand upon that with them and also with some of our other builder partners. Um, we're going to continue to drive the ancillary offering buckets and the customer experience side, which I think should help continue to redefine. We've been a trailblazer in terms of how people think about living. And I want to make the experience for a customer really unique to where we think we change the way we think about what I'm looking for, perhaps in a landlord or in a company I want to rent from. And what are these alternative services or how can they make my life more simple over time and distance? I want to make sure that we continue to kind of blaze a path there. 
Um, and then I want to be smart about additional markets. And maybe there's parts of the country we're not in. You know, we're not in markets like Salt Lake City and Nashville today. Those are great markets. We'd love to invest capital there someday. Uh, Austin, Texas is a really interesting market, San Antonio. So we're looking at a number of kind of ways that we could, you know, continue to expand and grow our business. I think our shareholders want it. They like, if you think about investing in a company like Invitation Home, it's a really good proxy for what's going on in U.S. housing, right? We own all this real estate. You get to ride the appreciation curves up or down. And then you also get to learn a lot about what the consumer wants today in terms of real estate preferences and living. And so it's a great proxy for, I think, for an investor to kind of take a ride on U.S. residential or to uh, figure out um, where the market is going in some way, shape, or form. And so I think, you know, multifamily did this in the 70s and 80s, where they aggregated all these different properties and created, you know, much more efficient property managers of multifamily. And that's what's lent that um, industry to become very efficient, very institutional, and, 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 and uh, a sector that, you know, big investors and small investors alike want to invest in. Single family rentals still in the first or second inning. There's only a few of us that are public. You know, there's a there's a few a handful of other big companies that are starting to grow. But if you take a step back, there might be of the 20 million called single family for rent homes in the U.S. Maybe 250 thousand are institutionally managed. So we'll, I would expect that our sector, our company, will continue to grow, continue to grow. You know, externally and or, and then also organically through the things that we're trying to offer the customer. Yeah, so, so, so that, uh, you know, this amount of, uh, of capital we're seeing move into this space, whether it's for you or some of these other operators uh, um, in the industry, plenty of room to, to absorb the, uh, the, the demands uh, of your business, as well as, you know, maintain uh, growth. Yeah, we should. I mean, if you look at the multifamily numbers over a 20 or 30 year period, the, big, the bigger institutional multifamily managers got to about 10 to 15% of total market share. I, I could see a world where single family operators, you know, own 10% of the single family for rent product that's there in the end that, you know, a and pop landlord, but maybe 15% of the time that home is owned by a professional company that can offer an array of services. We all know somebody that owns a single family home that rents it out. That's just, that's been like a U.S. thing back to our earliest point for two or 300 years. Nobody's just done it with scale and been able to bring in, you know, the right structure and technology. I mean, we spend 20, $25 million a year just on technology spend every year, just trying to get better and figure out ways to kind of enhance that experience. You know, unfortunately, a mom and pop landlord can't do that, right? They're going to take whatever off the shelf property management software is out there and they're going to you know, only be able to kind of fix things as their pace allows. And, and we can offer 24-hour service. We can, you know, have emergency service nights and weekends. We can find ways to go into your home when you're not there if you want us to. I mean, it's pretty cool and it should make your life a little easier over time and distance. That's our goal. Well, Dallas, thank you so much for, for spending this uh, this time with us. We're, our, our time's up, but I have about a half hour here uh, with you. Maybe last question I ask any kind of CEO or leader of a company, maybe you, maybe you gave us some of your bullet points, but for, for a, you know, a public investor, individual investor, keeping track of your company, what are the two or three things you'd have them take away from this conversation? Look, I would say be really focused in on the markets that we invest capital in. They're outperforming almost three to one in terms of household formation and demographics. Follow the way that we're building revenue into the business through our external growth and also some of these ancillary offerings. And then I feel really bullish and proud about the team we've assembled. My CIO comes from Hilton, who built all of you know the, the, the Hilton Honors Program and the Keyless Entry. Our, our HR folks are from Pepsi that built some of the greatest companies over time and distance. And the core team that runs our company has been doing this since the inception in 2010. And so we've just got this really excellent group. And I think our prospects for our investors should be really good as so long as we go out and execute. Awesome. We'll, we'll keep tracking the story. Thank you for joining us. 
Thanks. Appreciate it, guys. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Steve Broido for mixing the show. For Dallas Tanner and Ian Butler, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and for on. Mm-hmm.